Brother. Well, good morning, everyone. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. Well, as you can see from the sign behind me, we are taking a break from our series in the book of Colossians. As Pastor Brent mentioned earlier, we are coming up on our five-year anniversary as a church, and so we thought that it would be helpful to spend some time revisiting what it is that we believe the Lord has called us to as a church. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and you'll find First Peter towards the back end of your Bible, page 1015, 1014, 1015. In those Bibles, looking at the, the chapter numbers, the big numbers, the verse numbers, the little ones, bottom right-hand corners where we'll get started looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I'm going to read down to verse 10, um, and then we're going to spend most of our time looking at verse 9. So as I said, uh, next Sunday, uh, March 15th, this uh, little church will be five years old, we're celebrating five years of God's incredible faithfulness to us. And um, I've got to be honest, as I was preparing this message this week and thinking back over the last five years, Kind of got me in my feelings a little bit. Um, I'm just very thankful uh, for the Lord, uh, for what He has done. It filled me with joy thinking about His faithfulness to us this week. And I, I just want to say again that you, Cornerstone, show me the greatest kindness in allowing me to serve you as your pastor, allowing me to be a part of this church family. It is uh, one of the great joys of my life. And so I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Um, we started this church in 1 Peter chapter 2, and so I believe it is fitting for us to return to 1 Peter chapter 2. And Lord willing, what we'll do for the next um, f- five weeks is uh, today we'll look at our vision, our mission as a church, and then um, in the next four weeks we'll look at um, the four pillars of our church. So uh, you can see them on the signs here, Gospel Center Preaching. Christ-exalting worship, Christ-forming discipleship, and Christ-like service. We'll take a week on each one of those, Lord willing, into Easter, and then after Easter, we'll get back to Colossians. Okay, so that's how it's kind of teed up for the next several weeks. So let's jump right in. First Peter chapter 2, I'll read, then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. should be 45 minutes or so. This is the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First saying in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes again that we may see wondrous things from your word, that we may see the excellencies and the beauties of Jesus, that they may find good soil in our hearts to take root and through our lives to bear fruit, that God would be pleased with his people, those he has called to himself. We are your people for your possession. Equip us and use us to proclaim your excellencies. Amen. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in Piqua, in Miami County, in the world, through gospel-centered preaching, Christ-exalting worship, Christ-forming discipleship, and Christ-like service until Christ is all and in all. That is our mission statement as a church. It's why we exist. It's what we're working for. It's what we're working toward. To proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. This mission and this, this vision, this did not arise with me or Pastor Brent. It didn't arise from our sending church. Really, this mission, this vision arose from this text. As with all things, we've endeavored with God's help to base everything that we do on God's word. So we'll unpack this passage in two parts. First, we'll look at the foundation. Jesus is our foundation. You can see this on the back side of your worship guide. This is verses 4 to 8. Jesus is our foundation. And secondly, Jesus is our proclamation. We'll see that in verse 9 and 10. And then we'll end our time briefly talking about kind of how to do this for the next five years. So that's how it's laid out this morning. First, I want to do a brief introduction to First Peter. When we're jumping into a text, I want to give you a brief introduction as to what we're doing here. First Peter was a letter written by the apostle Peter toward the end of his life. He had written this letter to a group of Christians who were being persecuted and who were sort of spread out over Asia Minor. It's likely that they had been driven from their homes and they were in exile for being Christians. And so Peter's writing this letter to give them hope. Peter is the Peter you're thinking of, the Apostle Peter, the disciple that is famous for denying the Lord three times. Peter was a fisherman. Peter's daddy was a fisherman. Probable that his granddaddy was a fisherman. Fishing was his family business. He grew up on the waters in Galilee. So when you think of the Apostle Peter, that's what you should think. Fisherman. Professional fisherman, blue-collar kind of guy. He's not well-educated like the Apostle Paul. He's a man's man. He's a a, a gritty man, a a hard worker. He had calloused hands from casting nets all of his life. He's probably one of those guys who just knows how to fix anything that's broken. 
There's always dirt under his fingernails. If Peter were alive in America today, he'd be wearing a ball cap and an American flag t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. He'd probably cook a mean barbecue. Just one of those kind of guys, a little bit rough around the edges, but a straight shooter. He says what he means, and he means what he says. Now, Peter's also impetuous. He's one of those, like, open mouth, insert foot here kind of guys. He has a heart of gold, and Peter is fiercely loyal. When Jesus called Peter to become a disciple, he just went all in, left everything to follow Jesus. And for this reason, sometimes Peter can be a little self-assured. Sometimes he's even given to cowardice. In one night in Peter's life, he found himself taking up arms against an armed Roman soldier, striking him, and on the same night, found himself afraid of a teenage girl. Peter's walk with Jesus was like that. It had its ups and its downs. Within one conversation with Jesus, Jesus is blessing him for making the great confession. And then just moments later, Jesus is rebuking him, calling him Satan for saying something dumb. One minute, Peter is hanging out with Gentiles in Antioch. I don't know, eating chicken wings and shooting the breeze. But in the next moment, he's withdrawing from the Gentiles in Antioch, feeling the pressure from his Jewish friends. His boy Paul has to come and rebuke him in front of everyone. But this is Peter. And I bring this up because Peter is a lot like us. Thick-headed knuckle-draggers. Just takes us a while to get things. And so what we read from this letter, it's not coming to us from an ivory tower in some far-off land called academia. This is coming from a guy who's in the trenches. This is a guy who has seen some stuff. He's been on the other end of God's gentle rebuke. This is a man who knows the sting of deep conviction for his sin. Peter has scars. Peter knows sorrow. Peter knows what it's like to be, to have for your stomach to be sore from weeping so long. And so the first thing that Peter says to us this morning is of vital importance. You, brother and sister, you are an unfinished project. You are a work in progress. You are raw wood, not yet ready for the varnish. You are being built. You haven't been built yet. You're being built. And you're being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I think that's a good place to to get started as we reorient ourselves to the mission of our church. Let's have a look at verse 4 to 8 again. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So to get a sense of where this passage is moving, let's string together a couple of the verbs. Peter writes, as you come to him, you yourselves are being built up. As you come to him, you're being built up. Come to who? Well, come to Jesus, of course. We know that because of what Peter, how Peter describes this who. He describes him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. This is Jesus. Jesus was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God and precious to God. As you come to Jesus, you are being built up. Well, what does it mean to come to Jesus? Of course, it means to come to him at the time of your conversion, the time in which you became a Christian, the time when God opened your eyes and you saw the beauty of Jesus and you saw the filthiness of your sin and you ran to him. And there you received forgiveness and new life and a new purpose. That's what it means to come to him. For, 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 for the apostle Peter, this happened on the water. A lot of significant things happened to Peter on the water. His conversion happened when he was on a boat, washing his nets. Jesus was teaching. And at the end of Jesus' teaching, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, cast your nets into the water. A carpenter telling a fisherman, cast your nets. I know you just washed them. Go ahead and cast them into the water. And old Peter says, Lord, we, we fished all night. We've been skunked. But whatever, if you say so. And he casts the net into the water, and they caught so many fish. The nets were breaking. The boats were almost sinking. And at this, the Bible says Peter threw himself at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, Peter. You'll no longer be a fisher of fish. I'll make you a fisher of men. And he became a disciple from that moment on. That's something like what Peter is saying here as you come to Jesus. As a sinner, God forgives you of your sin and gives you a new purpose. You become a new person. And he begins to build you into something that you weren't before. A new person with new passions, with a new purpose. Look at verse 5. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, dear Christian, you're not floating through this world like a feather on the wind. You are being carried along by the Spirit of God, being built into something significant, something meaningful. Which means that every closed door for you is an open door to something greater for God's purpose through your life. It means that your life means something and God means to use that life for something. God's people are being built into a spiritual house in which Jesus Christ 
is the foundation. God's people are being built into a holy priesthood in which Jesus Christ is our great high priest. God's people are being built up to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, which Jesus Christ makes acceptable. Peter goes on in verse 6 to 8 to explain how it is that God is building His people. And he draws some passages from Isaiah and from the Psalms, and he uses the illustration of from the construction world. In those days, buildings were, they were made from stone, and they, they would start with one stone, the stone in the corner, the cornerstone. They would get the right shape, and then every other stone that made the building would be chiseled and cut and smoothed in order to line up. And match up with the cornerstone. So what Peter is saying is that God made Jesus the cornerstone. And all of God's people, like living stones, are being shaped and sanded and chiseled to match up to Him. The structural integrity of the building of the church is dependent upon each stone being properly matched to the cornerstone. And this happens to all who turn to God by faith in Jesus Christ. As you come to Him, you're being built up into Him, the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, on the people of God, forming them into the likeness of the Son of God, all to the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's the Christian life. So right now, the Spirit of God is searching the deep things of your heart, exposing the parts of your life which are not like Jesus. And the Spirit of God puts His merciful hand to the carbide-tipped chisel of His perfect Word and hammers away at those rough edges until they're perfectly aligned to Christ, who is the cornerstone. And so you know that's what's going on those days when everything is just falling apart. Every day that things just feel like everything is breaking down. That's what's going on in those times when everything feels harder than it should. When you feel tempted to throw up your arms and just give up. It's not worth it. That's what's going on when you keep hitting dead ends. The Spirit of God is tapping on the chisel, breaking away the parts of your life that are not like Christ, forming and shaping you into His image. And so for the Christian, there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as simply a bad day. That's why we prayed this morning from Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Jesus is our foundation. He is who we are being formed into, shaped into. Well, you might be wondering why. Why does it matter? Why wouldn't God just save me and just leave me alone? (laughs) I'll just live my life however I feel like, and when I die, I'll go to heaven, and all will be fine. 
Well, the reason God forms and shapes his people into the image of his son and aligns them to the cornerstone is revealed to us in what Peter says next. Jesus is our proclamation. This is verse, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 9 is so helpful because it tells us who we are. And it tells us why we are who we are. It's, it's a breath of fresh air, this. We live in a navel-gazing, selfie-obsessed world preoccupied with self-discovery and self-defining. And here we have creator telling creation why they were created. It's wonderfully refreshing, this. Peter says, you are. This, this is who you are. Forget what Myers-Briggs says you are. Forget about what your Enneagram number says you are. This is your Enneagram number, 2-9. That's your number. You're an Enneagram 2-9. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's possession. Now, for those of you who know your Bible, you'll recognize some of these words. Peter is taking the Lord's word that he had given to his people Israel and applying them to these persecuted Christians throughout Asia Minor. This is what the Lord said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Sound familiar? Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than all the other peoples that were on, on the face of the earth, but it's because the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you. Why was Israel chosen? One reason. Because God set his love on them. God made the choice to choose that people for himself. Not because of anything in them, but because of everything in him. It's the same with you and I. How amazingly leveling this is, right? You are a chosen race. And you were chosen by God on high, not because of your talent. There's no spiritual combine. You were, ta- you were chosen because of God's love for you. So therefore, there's no reason to boast. Now, I know most of you well enough to know, boasting in yourself is not really that big of a temptation. Most of you aren't thinking that you are the elect of God because, well, duh, I mean, look at me. But can I be honest? Many of you are tempted in the other direction. 
Well, I know I'm supposed to be discipling others. But look at me. I, I don't really have much to offer. I don't really, I'm not a teacher. I don't know that much about the Bible. So on the one hand, you have the slugger, and the other, you have the sluggish. The slugger boasting in themselves, saying, well, I'm here, church is saved. And then you have the sluggish saying, I, I, look, I know I'm supposed to be involved, but I, I'm in a season, just in a season. Well, both the slugger and the sluggish are doing the very same thing, They're looking at themselves. One is showing off, the other making excuses, but both looking at themselves. And both need to be looking at Jesus. See, since God leveled everyone at the cross, no one can believe themselves to be more qualified than another. And neither can someone believe themselves to be less qualified than another. If you are a Christian, it is because God set his electing love on you and made you his, his own possession. This, this cuts against the grain. Because all week long, we're bombarded by messages the modernist messages of this existential life, like how to find meaning in life. We're being told, find yourself, be yourself, accept yourself, believe in yourself. And it's everywhere. It's on everything. Recently, I saw a makeup ad convincing me to be myself. I'm thinking, so... For me to be myself, I have to take your stuff and make my face look not like my face, and then I'll be myself. (laughs) That, That makes sense. But all week long, we're being told, find yourself, believe in yourself. Or, perhaps, we could go to the one who made ourselves and ask him to tell us who we are, why we were made. Here in 1 Peter 2.9, we're being told this is who you are. This, this is where you will find your purpose. You're his. God's own possession. And so it is that God determines the purpose of your life. You don't. He does. So, some of you work at Honda. And by the way, thank you for making great cars. It's important work. But imagine tomorrow morning, you go to work and you tell your supervisor, I'm, I'm tired of making cars. It's always been my dream to make 
ninja stars. So I'm going to reconfigure your machines with your material to make ninja stars so that I can realize my dreams. What do you think is going to happen? It won't fly, pun intended. So why do we think that God is somewhere up in heaven with nothing better to do except to help you realize your dreams? How can I say this nicely? God don't care about your dreams. That might be a little harsh, but just think about this. In your dreams, who's the main character? When, right before the credits of your life roll, who, who's, who gets the close-up? Who's riding off into the sunset? Who's the hero of your story? It's not that your dreams are dumb. It's just that they're too small. And when the Lord saves his people, he gives them better dreams, bigger dreams. Dreams that will actually make them happy. Dreams that will actually have lasting value. So when the Lord saved you, he gave you big dreams of eternal value that carry lasting joy. And he has tethered your dreams to his purpose. What purpose is that? We've been dancing around it, and now we'll land on it. Here it is in 1 Peter 2.9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is your purpose, Cornerstone. It is the purpose of this church, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is why God saved you. This is why God brought you here. And God's been telling us this since the very beginning. This should come as no surprise. God said this through Isaiah to his people. He said, I give you water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We exist for one purpose, to make much of Jesus Christ, to proclaim His excellencies, to declare His praise. And your life is not any more complicated than that. Isn't that refreshing to know? This is why you were made? You you don't have to wonder. You don't have to wander around in a dark wood to try and find this mystical purpose. You have it right here in the page in front of you. God has been kind. In addition to giving you his purpose, God has also been kind to connect your joy to his purpose. He didn't have to do it that way. I mean, he's God, right? He could have just done whatever he wanted. He could have connected nothing to you obeying his commandments. You could have just done it without feeling. But God is kind, and He has wed our joy to obeying His commandments. 
Such that when you're pointing to Jesus, when you're proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, you will have joy in your life like you've never had before. This is what you were made for. Is this what you're living for? When you're thinking about the week to come this afternoon, is that what you will be thinking? How will my life in some way or another make much of Jesus? It should. It should direct the way you spend your time this week. It should direct the way you spend your money this week. It should direct the way you think and the way you speak this week. What are you living for? What glory are you striving for? If you're not a Christian, I I can't answer it for you. I don't know. But I will say I'm glad you came to church today. I want you to know that you're welcomed here. And you don't have to become a Christian in order to be welcomed here. But I need you to know that if you're living for any glory other than the Lord's glory, not only will you be unsatisfied with your life, but you will remain under the judgment of God for your sins. And when you die, you'll be removed from God forever. And I'm here to just tell you, you picked a perfect day to come to church and to tell you, turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. God will show you mercy and He will grant you that new life and that new purpose which you will find with new joy in Jesus Christ. I hope you do that today. And if you do, tell someone about it. Tell one of us here. Tell me. I'll be out there in the foyer on your way out. I'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. Cornerstone, your life is a stage upon which the Lord is telling His story about His Son through you. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our proclamation. Jesus is our song. We are, a, we are musicians with one note. We, we play one song. We are students of one subject, followers of one man. We are his, he is ours, and we exist to make much of him. So God will bring you in and out of situations, whatever they are, some easy, some not so easy, in order to display through you the glorious realities of God's mercy, of God's grace. God's faithfulness. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. So I'll end our time thinking about some ways in which this looks. How, does, how do you proclaim the excellencies of Christ in your life? Well, I suppose we could go on and on. And since I forgot to change the clock, looks like I have like a whole nother hour. <laughs> but I'll spare you. If the Lord grants this church a- another five years, here's some ways we, as a body, can proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. So five things as we wrap up.
First, proclaim the excellencies of Christ through holy joy. Make your enjoyment of God the highest priority in your life. Have you noticed few things communicate value than your enjoyment of it? If you are really enjoying something, then that thing is really enjoyable and that thing is really valuable. We prove the value of something by our enjoyment of it. Your joy in Christ preaches. It preaches the satisfaction that Jesus is to a joyless world that is not satisfied by anything. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. By enjoying the pleasures of the only one who is truly and eternally satisfying. Each day, purposely fill your life with things that deepen your joy in the Lord. I think some of us, maybe you grew up in church Maybe you didn't grow up in church, and you have a perspective that becoming a Christian means cutting out of your life all the things that make you happy. And that somehow you've connected to, like, holiness and faithfulness in the Christian life to your grumpiness. Being sad or being mad that you can't have. And all of your Christian life is all the things that you can't do. I just want you to know that's wholly unbiblical. The Bible is all the time pointing out freedom, joy in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that as a Christian, pursuing joy in the Lord, that you don't do things you don't want to do. It's not like you stop doing all the hard things in your life. Not at all. Because every Christian knows that joy is not the absence of suffering. Joy is the presence of what is satisfying. It means that we show the excellencies of Christ best when we are being satisfied in Him above all else. It means that whatever God has given you, whatever God has withheld from you, your joy isn't in those things. It's in Him. He is our delight. He is the fullness in our lack. He is the riches in our poverty. He is the beauty in our deformities. He is the majesty in our barrenness. He is the purity in our corruption. He is the warmth when we're feeling cold. He is the light when we're lost in darkness. He's the cool breeze when we're feeling overheated. He is the harmony when we are in turmoil. He is the peace when we're feeling bitterness. He is the relief when we're in discomfort. He is the strength when we're feeling weak. He is the vitality when we are feeling weary. He is the freedom 
when we're feeling in bondage and on and on and on it goes, our satisfaction is in the Lord. That's first. And this joy in the Lord will drive us to the second way we proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We proclaim the excellencies of Christ by living holy lives. Joy drives holiness. A husband who is absolutely head over heels for his wife could not imagine himself being unfaithful to her. His delight in her drives his devotion to her. It's the same thing with the Lord. Satisfaction in the Lord drives faithfulness to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and seek to do the things that please Him. And when you do, your joy is increased. Your desire to please Him is increased and it feeds itself. The allure of sin fades because you can see no joy. In anything apart from Jesus. Third, we proclaim the excellencies of Christ through holy work. Through holy work. Now, of course, our satisfaction is not in our jobs. Our satisfaction is not in our paychecks. Our satisfaction isn't even in a job well done, but in a job well done for Jesus' sake. Christ accomplished the work of the cross for for hell-deserving sinners like us. And He has filled our lives to overflowing such that we give ourselves to holy work for His sake. You proclaim the excellencies of Christ this week at work by doing your work as if you were doing it for Him. Colossians 3.23 says that very thing. Work heartily as into the Lord. Here in a few weeks when we get back to Colossians, we're going to see it's, not, it's actually your boss that you're working for anyway. Did you know as a Christian, your boss is not your boss? Not in the sense that like you meant it when you were a little kid telling your older sibling, you're not my boss. Not in that sense. But in the sense that like your boss It's not who you're working for. You're working for the Lord. So how might that change the quality of work that you do this week? As a Christian, you should change it altogether. We show the excellencies of Christ by holy work. Fourth, proclaim the excellencies of Christ by holy ministry. By holy ministry. Jesus spent his life giving himself to build the kingdom. And we... In this room are direct beneficiaries of His ministry. We are being built on Him, and so it should only make sense that we would be about the same work as Him. After all, we just read, we are a holy priesthood. We are helping others be reconciled to God, just like the priests would do in the Old Testament. Give yourself to the Lord's purpose in this church. Give your time to discipling someone one-on-one. Give your finances 
to support the mission of the church. Live, that means live below your means, dear American Christian. As, as countercultural as that sounds, live below your means. Not so that you can have a big savings, but so that you can be a generous person. Give your talents to serve the ministry of the church. Give your time to do, to do pebbles and to serve in the nursery and to serve at Cornerstone Kids and show up early to help get things going for a service on Sunday. Come to members gathering so that you can know how to pray for the members of your church and write those things down and then be praying for them by name throughout the week. Call one another throughout the week. Offer encouragement to one another. Invite others into your home so that you can encourage them and build them up. Finally, fifth, proclaim the excellencies of Christ through holy mission. Through holy mission. We pray toward, we work toward, we give toward going and sending people to the unreached. God has sent His servants to us. That faceless army of men and women who came to us and and brought us to Jesus, prayed for us, shared the gospel with us. If you're a Christian in this room right now, it's not because you got here alone. Someone else was involved in your life praying for you, shared the gospel with you. And so, because of that, we set our eyes to making disciples and planting churches among the unreached. We ask the Lord regularly whether He would have us go. I hope that this is a part of your life, part of your year, that you're going to the Lord and saying, Father, would you have me sell everything I own and go to the nations? Or would you have me stay here and work really hard and live below my means in order to support those who do go to the nations? That's what it means to live on holy mission. Jesus deserves the praise of every language, of every people group, of every skin color, of every culture of man. And so we labor and serve and sacrifice and give to see the gospel planted to those who've never heard. May the Lord be gracious to us and fill us with His Spirit and make us fruitful to this very end to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. This is our mission. This is our vision.